Amen. Praise the Lord. I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 5. I want to begin with a healing story, healing event that took place in Jesus' ministry that you should be familiar with. If you've spent much time around us, you're going to hear about it with some regular frequency. It's a story with the issue of blood who was healed. Mark chapter 5, verse 25. And a certain woman which had an issue of blood 12 years, and had suffered many things of many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was nothing better, but rather grew worse, when she had heard of Jesus, came in the press behind, and touched his garment. For she said, If I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. And straightway the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that virtue, or literally the word power in the Greek, that power had gone out of him, turned him about in the press and said, Who touched my clothes? And his disciples said unto him, Thou seest the multitude thronging thee, and sayest thou, Who touched me? In other words, he's saying, Everybody's touching you. What do you mean, who touched you? And he looked round about to see her that had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what was done in her, came and fell down before him and told him all the truth. And he said unto her, Daughter, thy faith has made thee whole. Go in peace and be whole of thy plague. Now I want you to, to uh, focus in particularly on the fact that Jesus credited the woman's faith as, as the, being the, the catalyst or the reason that her healing came. We've uh, made this statement numerous times, but it bears repetition. I, I think it's good to think in these terms because uh, without knowing this information, a lot of times people get the wrong idea about Jesus' healing ministry and the way things work. But there are 19 individual cases of healing in Jesus' ministry, as foretold by the, uh, the four Gospels. Now, that uh, uh, we generally have the idea, most people have the idea that there are more than that, because some of the Gospel accounts will duplicate events uh, that took place, like for example, here in Matthew chapter, I mean uh, Mark chapter 5, Luke gives an account of this story too. Well, you can't count that again since it's the same, same story, same healing event. And um, I, I really don't know what to call them other than healing events. It doesn't include the fact that uh, what the Bible tells us about the multitudes that were healed and, and thing like, things like that. I'm not talking about when the ten lepers were healed. Because they operated differently one from another. At least one of them stood out from the others. But the four Gospels tell us about 19 individual cases of healing in Jesus' ministry. Now, the church world seems to have the idea that Jesus went around indiscriminately healing people according to the power of God or to prove that he was the Son of God or for some other spiritual reason like that. And they, they assume, or it's fixed in their thinking, that it just took place because Jesus wanted it to, or God the Father wanted it to, and Jesus was carrying it out. But if that were the case, why does Jesus magnify the woman's faith? He said her faith has made her whole. Now, from what we uh, can glean from this story, what we've already read, there's a multitude of people. I don't know how many a multitude is, but I would expect it to be dozens, maybe 50 people, maybe 100 people, I don't know. But the Bible calls it a multitude. The disciples said to Jesus, the multitude throngeth thee. In other words, everybody that can touch Jesus is touching Jesus. Everybody that can get close enough and push through the crowd to get a hand on him 
is reaching out to touch him. Well, it's not touching Jesus that did the, did the work, is it? Now, the woman with the issue of blood, when she touched Jesus, power went out of him into her. And she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. But if power is going out of Jesus into whoever touches him, then why did he single her out? It wasn't the touch of Jesus that made the difference. It wasn't her contact with Jesus that made the difference. It was her reason for reaching out and touching Jesus that did it. And Jesus called that faith. Now we know what faith is. We know from what Jesus told us and defined faith to be for us. It's believing the word in your heart and saying it with your mouth. Faith is just simply believing in the heart and speaking or saying with the mouth. Well, we see that she filled that criteria. When she heard of Jesus, she came in the press behind because she said. She said something. She didn't say it to Jesus, but she began to say to herself, If I can just touch his clothes, I shall be whole. Well, when she acted on what she said, she got what she had been saying. When she acted on the fact or the, the truth of the confession that she was making, if I can just touch his clothes, I shall help. She did her part and reached out and touched his clothes. And because it was faith that motivated her and not whatever was motivating the rest of the crowd, that faith triggered the power of God and healed her, raised her up. Now, what's everybody else in this crowd doing and why? Everybody seems to be trying to touch him. Many of them successfully. Well, how come they didn't get anything? Is there any of us that think that this woman with the issue of blood is the only sick person in the crowd? If she's the only sick person in the crowd, then there's all the more reason to ask the question, why is everybody else touching him? Now, we have to assume that because everybody is touching him, everybody in the crowd, at least the ones that are acting on, on uh, or taking action to reach out and take hold of him or touch his clothes or something, we have to assume that they've heard some, something or similar things to what the woman with the issue of blood had heard about Jesus. It says, when she heard of Jesus, she came in the press behind and touched his garment. For she said, if I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. So people must be aware, the people in this multitude at least, must be aware that healing power goes out of Jesus through physical touch because that's what they're trying to get a hold of. But it's not their desire that makes the difference. It's not their attitude toward Jesus that makes the difference. It's what it's this thing that Jesus called faith. Now, of the 19 individual healing events, cases of healing in uh, the four Gospels, 70% of them identify the faith of the individual. Now, stop and think about what that means. If Jesus is healing, and I don't know if this is a good word to use, but I don't know whatever, what other word to, to put here. If Jesus is indiscriminately healing the sick, and by that I mean if he's acting independent of their faith just because God wants people well. Thank God God does want people well. But if Jesus is sent to the earth just to deliver that healing to them, then faith wouldn't be necessary on the part of the individual. Well, then if Jesus is not healing to deliver what God wants for them, if he's not healing to prove that he's the son of God, then what is the criteria or the important ingredient to receive your healing? It's got to be faith. It has to be faith. Now, we've got other evidence to, to back this up from the Scripture, and you can turn with me over to Luke chapter 4. 
Because the Bible tells us about people in, place, in certain places, certain cities that didn't believe him, that didn't believe in his healing power, that didn't believe that he was the Messiah, that didn't believe that he was sent to the earth for the purpose of delivering God's healing mercy or healing power. It tells us in Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 16, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. That's where Jesus grew up as a little boy. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. Now this is after John's baptized him in the Jordan River. Everybody that was there bear witness that there was a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And they also saw that something came down out of the sky that would fly down to the earth similar to a bird, landed on Jesus and remained. So you got all three persons of the Godhead of the Trinity in operation here. You've got Jesus being baptized, you've got God speaking from heaven, and you've got the presence of the Holy Ghost that's coming and settling on Jesus. Now it's also good to, to interject here, I believe, that the Bible says in Philippians chapter 2, that Jesus laid aside his heavenly power and glory and came to the earth to be a man. He operated on the earth as a man. Well, if he laid aside his heavenly power and glory, stripped himself, the, King, or the Greek literature says, he stripped himself of his heavenly authority. That means Jesus cannot be operating here on the earth as a member of the Godhead. Because if he's operating on the earth as the Son of God or as a part of the Trinity, how do you anoint God? The Bible tells us that the, the three, God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit, are all co-equal and co-eternal. Well, if they're co-equal, and Jesus is operating here on the earth as the Son of God, the creator of the earth, then who's greater than him to be able to anoint him? A lesser being certainly couldn't anoint him. Not even an equal being could anoint him. But because Jesus had laid aside his heavenly power and glory and come to the earth to be a man, then he's in position, not as the Son of God. Thank God he was the Son of God. But that's not the reason or the way he's operating here on the earth. And because he came to the earth to operate as a man, as a human being, he's in position for the Holy Ghost to anoint him. As a matter of fact, it requires his work as the Messiah would require the anointing of the Holy Ghost. To do the work God had given him to do. In other words, I'm telling you from what the Bible says that we can conclude that Jesus did not have inherent healing power because he's operating on the earth as a man. He said himself, the works that I do, they're not of me. The Father in me doeth the works. So he's not claiming that the healing power of God is his. That's why in Mark chapter 5, Jesus was able to identify one person that touched him differently than everybody else. That's why the power of God was triggered, and, and notice this too about that story, the power of God was triggered to effect a healing and a cure from the, uh, in the woman with issue of blood without Jesus even knowing about it ahead of time. Jesus just simply knew that power had gone out of him, and he understood that that power must have gone into somebody else. So that's why he stops and looks around. 
Think about what that means, folks. It's not a matter of God or Jesus and or Jesus taking a specific liking to the woman with the issue of blood. It would have worked for anybody. It would have worked for everybody. Everybody in that multitude that reached out and touched him, had they reached out and touched him in faith like she did, then that healing power would have flowed out of him and everybody in the crowd. Can you see that? Well, if that's the way it worked in Jesus' ministry, how is it going to work for us? If not the same way. The Bible says Jesus had the Spirit without measure. We don't. We have the Spirit by measure. That means you've got a measure of the Holy Ghost uh, equipping you to do whatever you're supposed to do. And I've got a measure of the Holy Ghost to equip me to do whatever I'm supposed to do. And together throughout the world, I believe the whole body of Christ would make up the, the Spirit without measure. But Jesus had all that on himself. Only on himself. But there were times and situations where that healing power wouldn't work. Even though it's the power of God without measure on Jesus, it still takes faith to activate it. Let's go back to verse 18 of Luke chapter 4. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Notice how many things he's anointed to preach. Deliverance to the captives comes through preaching. Recovering of sight to the blind comes through preaching. Operating in this life as if every year were the year of Jubilee comes by preaching. Now why is it necessary to preach the word or preach these things? Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. Without the preaching, there's no foundation for faith. There's no possibility to stand on faith or to act in faith like the woman with the issue of blood did. If she hadn't heard of Jesus' healing power, she couldn't have been healed herself. If she hadn't heard of Jesus coming to the earth and concluded something, we don't know exactly, but she has to conclude some way or another that Jesus is sent from God to minister healing according to God's will. Otherwise, she wouldn't have said what she did. She wouldn't have been able to believe what she did. She said, if I can just touch his clothes, I shall be whole. So what does that mean? That means she took personally what she had heard Jesus minister to other people. She took the power of God personally and individually. I've never seen anybody healed that doesn't. It's a requirement. It's a prerequisite. You have to take the healing power of God personally. You have to take Jesus' work as the Messiah personally. Now, it's easy to say at this point, it's easy to say, well, Jesus isn't on the earth like he was back then. No, but the Bible says Jesus is, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, if the healing power of God was easier to receive when Jesus was here on the earth than it is today, by faith, by the same faith, then God is a respecter of persons and he's playing favorites. But on the other hand, if or since Jesus is the healer and he never changes, that means healing is just as available today according to the instruction of the word. It's just as easy to believe or have faith in receiving your healing today as it was when Jesus was on the earth. Otherwise, he wouldn't be the same. Can you see that? We have in Mark chapter 5 a microcosm 
of the body of Christ. Because you got a lot of people that are going through the motions of reaching out and taking hold of Jesus. Thinking that it's the physical touch alone. Thinking that it comes down to the will of God simply and solely. I'm sure there were a lot of people in that multitude in Mark chapter 5 that were trying Jesus out. Touching him to see if anything would happen. I have no doubt that there were a lot of people that were touching him to see what was going to happen. Their thinking was, if something happens, then it's the will of God for me to be healed. If nothing happens, then I guess it's not his will for me. That's human nature. That's where a lot of the church world is today, isn't it? Well, it would stand to reason that since human nature never changes, the same thing would be true in their day and in their situation. So Jesus preaches that he's anointed. He preaches that he has power to heal the sick because God's given it to them, to him. But he's not well received in Nazareth. He closed the book, verse 20, and gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. I'm told that in the synagogues in Jesus' day, I don't know if it's still that way today. Honestly, to be honest with you, I've never been in the synagogue, so I don't know. But I'm told that in Jesus' day at least, there was a seat, a special seat in the synagogues that was reserved for the Messiah. It was similar to the fact that they put a, uh, the Jews in keeping of the Passover feast have a setting, a place for John to, to John's return to sit in that seat as a representative of the Messiah. Well, if that's true, then when Jesus sits down in the Messiah's seat, everybody's eyes would certainly be fastened on him, wouldn't they? They just heard him preach to them or read to them from the uh, book of Isaiah, what we know of as Isaiah 61, first part of the chapter. He's speaking and reading scriptures that pertain only to the Messiah and scriptures that everybody knows pertains only to the Messiah. These would be scriptures that those that are devout would be looking for as signs of the one that God would send. And Jesus says, that's me. Sits down in the Messiah's seat and everybody's watching him. And Jesus says to them, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Now let me translate that for you a little bit. It's Jesus saying, these scriptures are talking about me. He could not be any clearer in claiming to be the Messiah unless he just stood up and said, I'm the Messiah. Because in effect, that's exactly what he's done through the scriptures that he read and the things that he said of himself. And all bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words that proceeded out of his mouth. So he's talking about more and he's preaching more. He's saying more than just the scriptures that he read in, Luke chapter, in Isaiah chapter 61, didn't he? He begins to speak to them. What's he doing? Again, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. He has to be trying to inspire them or instill faith in them from the things that he says. And they're, they're blown away, floored by the graciousness of the words that he's speaking. In other words, they can't argue with anything that he says. He's speaking with such wisdom that even though they don't believe that he's the Messiah, they can't argue with what he's saying. So they wondered at the gracious words that came out of his mouth. And what did they conclude? They have a question. They said, isn't this Joseph's son? See, the virgin birth prophesied about the Messiah was well known among the Jews. 
And because they thought that Jesus was born of Mary and Joseph and not Mary and the Holy Ghost. They conclude there's no way that this guy can be the Messiah. So Jesus says to them, you will surely say unto me this proverb. Notice what he does. Here's his answer to them asking the question, isn't this Joseph's son? See, if it's Joseph's son, all bets are off. If it's Joseph's son, he can't be the Messiah no matter what. So they've got to decide whether or not their thinking about him being Joseph's son is a disqualifier for the claims that he's making and the things that they've heard about him. So Jesus says, you will surely say unto me this proverb, physician, heal thyself. Whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum do also here in this country. So what have they heard? They've heard of his healing ministry in Capernaum. One of the three cities where he did most of the works, the healings and the mighty miracle works that took place in his three-year ministry. So he says, Jesus says, I know what you're struggling with. I know why you're conflicted. You think you know me. And you think what you know about me disqualifies me from being the Messiah. But you've heard about the miracles that I did in Capernaum. So he knows that their position, and again, this is human nature, it never changes. He knows that they're waiting for him to do a miracle, and then maybe they'll believe. But folks, you don't get miracles without believing first. So Jesus says, I know you're, what you're thinking. You want me to do the miracles apart from faith. You want me to do the miracles while you're un, in unbelief. Now, folks, I want you to get this. I want you to understand what's going on. This is the very same position that so much of the church world takes today. If I could just see a miracle, then I'd believe. They wouldn't. Because if you're not willing, and this goes for everybody, anybody that's not willing to believe based on the Word of God wouldn't believe no matter what miracle they saw. Jesus proved that out in his ministry over and over again. After the feeding of the 5,000, there were still multitudes, not as big a crowd as there were, but there were still multitudes that followed Jesus. And Jesus said, I know why you're here. You want another free lunch. They saw the miracle of the loaves and fishes multiplied to feed 5,000. They saw the 12 baskets full of leftovers that were gathered after the fact. And that didn't cause them to believe that Jesus was the Christ. Anybody that says they'd believe if they just saw a miracle is either lying to you or lying to themselves. It's just not the way that it works. So then Jesus says, I say, Verily I say unto you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. He talks about others coming from outside the, the uh, children of Abraham, descendants of Abraham, to sit in heaven with God where many of the Jews will be left out because of their unbelief. And they rose up and they thrust him out of the city and took him to the brow of the hill, intending to kill him, throw him down and kill him. But Jesus walked through the midst. Now Mark's account, it's a much shorter version, version in Mark chapter 6. But it's the same story. It doesn't tell us what Jesus preached like Luke does. But it tells us the same results. It says, and Jesus marveled because of their unbelief. It further says, and he could there do no mighty work. 
in Nazareth, his own hometown, and you know if you want to make it good anywhere, it's the place where you grew up. In his own hometown, even though he declares to them that he's anointed to heal the sick, he's anointed to preach deliverance to the captives and preach the recovering of sight to the blind, he's anointed to do all these things that would result in healings and miracles. Identifying and telling us specifically that it's the will of God for him to do those miracles and have those healings in Nazareth. But Nazareth didn't get any healing miracles. How come? It says, and he could there do no mighty word work. Means he didn't have any blind eyes open. No cripples walked. No lepers were cleansed or anything of that nature. It says the only thing that he was able to do was heal a few sickly folks. A few folks with minor ailments. But nothing big. No healing miracles like they had heard of him do in Capernaum. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Now, folks, if unbelief stopped Jesus, who had the Spirit without measure, don't you think unbelief will stop us too? But see, that's the position that most of the church takes, most of the church world takes. Their position is, if God wants to do a miracle, then he will. And if he does a miracle, if he heals my body or whatever the case is, then I'll know that it's his will for it to be done. That's exactly what the people in the Nazareth their position was the same, and as a result, they did without what God wanted and willed for them to have. Notice it's not dependent on just the will of God. And we can't act apart from the will of God and expect to get his blessings, but it takes more than just knowing that it's the will of God for something to happen. We've got to have faith for it for ourselves. Now, I want you to look with me into another account, another instance of healing. And the things surrounding that. I want you to look with me to Mark chapter 9. We want to start in verse 14. And when he came to his disciples. He's coming back from the mountain of transfiguration. When he came back to his disciples. He saw a great multitude about them. And the scribes questioning with them. And straightway all the people when they beheld him. Were greatly amazed. And running to him saluted him. And he asked the scribes. What question you with them? The scribes were the ones, along with the Pharisees, that were always trying to trip Jesus up. So he assumes the same thing is taking place in there, trying to trap the disciples into saying the wrong thing or speaking against Caesar or whatever. So he says, what question you with them? And one of the multitude answered and said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which has a dumb spirit. And wheresoever he taketh him, he teareth him, and he foameth and gnashes with his teeth and pines away. And I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. Now, folks, if you back up a little bit, even in this ninth chapter of Matthew, you'll find that Jesus has delivered or delegated healing power to the disciples. He gave them power to heal every sickness, every manner of sickness, and every manner of disease, every kind of sickness, in other words. He's already empowered them to do it, but they can't make it work. They can't make the power of God that Jesus delegated to them work for the benefit of the, of the man and his son. So they could not, the father says. That implies that they tried and failed, doesn't it? So Jesus answered him and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. What does Jesus know that the disciples do not know? 
They have the same healing power, not in the same measure, but they have the same healing power because Jesus delegates a part of the healing power or a part of the anointing that's on him by the Holy Ghost to his disciples. And the power is sufficient to heal every manner of sickness and every manner of disease. So Jesus has already delegated to them, given them authority over every area of sickness and disease. There's no sickness and no disease that would be too great for them to bring healing to or provide healing for. But they couldn't make it work. Why couldn't they make it work? Jesus knows what the disciples don't yet know. He knows that unbelief keeps the power from working no matter how much power you have. It kept it from working in Nazareth. It kept it from working in other cities too. So Jesus understands that the problem here is unbelief. Now look again at what Jesus said. Let me read this verse of scripture again to what Jesus said. After the father says the disciples tried to cast the devil out of my son but they could not. Notice verse 19. He answered him. Who's he that's doing the talking? Jesus. Who's the him that Jesus is talking to? The Father. Notice what Jesus said to him. O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. Jesus is not saying to, to the disciples, you unbelieving group, where is your faith? Jesus knows that it's the faith of the individual, in this case the father who has authority over his son. He knows it's the, the requirement of the father to have faith in order for the power to do what the dad wants it to do for his son, to deliver the son. Jesus knows that unbelief has to be the problem. Jesus did not say, let me talk about how you conduct things in your home. He didn't say, let's go back to the beginning of where this first started happening with your son. Jesus does ask him later on, how long has his son been this way? But he doesn't go digging in the past. He doesn't go trying to convince or persuade or psychoanalyze this guy in any way whatsoever. Jesus knows the only thing that stops the power of God from working is unbelief. So he doesn't have to search for anything. There's no search necessary. Jesus knows that unless he can get the father into faith... He can't get deliverance for the son. It's just that simple, folks. Faith brings results. Unbelief fails. And Jesus knows that not just from his own ministry, but he knows that where the power that he's given the disciples is concerned too. Verse 20, and they brought him, the son, unto Jesus. And when he saw him, he being the son, him being Jesus, straightway the spirit tear him. And he fell on the ground and wallowed foaming. Apparently he goes into some kind of um, epileptic type fit or, or something. Because of the control that the devil's got over this boy's life. And Jesus asked his father, how long is it ago since this came unto him? And the dad says, since he was a child. And sometimes it has cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. But if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Over the years, I've really learned to empathize with this dad who's trying to get help for his son. This is a cry of desperation at this point. Imagine the joy that this dad heard or had received when he heard that Jesus was healing the sick and setting people free and casting devils out of people. Probably for the first time since this boy was a child, 
We don't know how old he is now, how long this has been the case. But since the very beginning or early on, the father has probably had no hope whatsoever. But hope comes in the form of the stories of Jesus and the healing miracles and the deliverance miracles that are taking place. But then those hopes are dashed when the disciples can't do the job. Now I would imagine, and this is just speculation on my part, but uh, listen and see what you think. I would imagine that when this father finds out where Jesus is going to be, he does whatever's necessary to take his son to them. And he finds the disciples, but Jesus and Peter and John aren't with him. And so the, he would certainly be disappointed that Jesus wasn't there to take care of things. But maybe one of the disciples stand up and say, and tell him, well, you know, just because Jesus isn't here doesn't mean we can't help you. Why, well, it's just not too long ago that Jesus delegated authority and power over sickness and disease to us. So we can cast this out of your son just like Jesus would. The father's hopes are buoyed once again. Then the disciples try to cast the devil out of this little boy, and nothing happens. So they try again, and nothing happens. So they try again, and nothing happens. I'm not sure how many times it would take for them trying and failing to come to the point where they're not even sure about the power of God to heal anymore. Because it's not working. But Jesus comes on the scene and acts totally different. He doesn't have to ask a lot of questions. He doesn't have to get a lot of information. He knows that the only way that it can't be working, the only thing that could have stopped the power that he delegated to the disciples from healing this boy and casting the devil out is unbelief. He knows that has to be the case. He knows whose unbelief controls the situation. Not the disciples. No matter what their condition is because they tried and failed numerous times perhaps, he knows it's got to be with the dad. He sees the state of the child to such a degree, and it wasn't difficult, but he, whatever it took, he sees pretty readily that the son's not in position to exercise any authority over this thing for himself. So it's got to be the dad. And that's why Jesus says, you're a faithless generation. You're part of a generation just like in Nazareth that wants to see the miracles first, and then they say they'll believe but you got to believe before you see the miracle or you won't see one at all. So the father says, he recounts, sometimes it's cast him into the fire to kill him and into the waters to drown him or destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Now the King James English doesn't bring it out very well, but if you do some study in the original Greek or good commentary, you'll find out that Mark 9, 23 is a sarcastic statement. The words that are used, even though there's no punctuation in the Greek language, in the text that the, that the New Testament comes from, the wording itself identifies surprise and sarcasm. And so Jesus says, remember what the Father said, if you, have, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said unto him, still talking to the Father, if thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. Poor translation in the English. It literally reads like this. If I can, all things are possible to him that believeth. In other words, he's saying, it's not up to what I can do. 
I have the power to cast out devils and deliver your son, just like the disciples that tried and failed. Their power is just as real and just as effective as the power that I have. Notice here again, Jesus is not saying, and never does he say or approach, get even close to saying, only I can take care of this kind. He indicates that the disciples could have and should have been able to do the same thing that he can do. But Jesus turns it around and says, it's not a matter of my ability. That's settled in heaven. God doesn't have to give Jesus a, a second dose of anointing to deliver this boy. The power is without dispute. The power is readily available. Just like in Mark chapter 5, the power that Jesus had to heal the sick and deliver his son is upon him because of the anointing of the Holy Ghost. It resides in him and upon him to meet the needs of anybody that's willing to reach out in faith. So he's got to get the Father over into faith. So he says, if I can, all things are possible to him that believes. So much of the church world wants to put it over on God. Lord, if it's your will, then heal me. Heal my body to show me and prove to me that it's your will. Jesus turned that right back on the Father. What can you believe? It's not about the power. The Father's magnifying the power. The modern day church magnifies the power. It's not about the power. It's about faith in, faith in God. Faith in God's willingness to help us and heal us. So Jesus said, if I can't, all things are possible to him that believes. And straightway the father of the child cried out. Here again he's in desperation. Now he's being told that he's got to believe in something and he doesn't even know what he's supposed to believe. Straightway the father of the child cries out and says with tears, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. Remember Jesus said on several occasions that faith is like a grain of mustard seed. Mustard seed, as I understand it, is one of the smallest, if not the smallest seed there is. Now, mustard seed will grow into a giant tree. Not just a mustard crop. Or like planting kernels of corn will grow up into corn stalks. The Bible talks about mustard trees being one of the kind of, uh, some of the biggest trees in that part of the world. And so when Jesus used the example that faith is a grain of mustard seed, he's talking about even the smallest acceptance or intent to accept the truth of God's word no matter what you see or feel will grow into a giant tree much more than you might have expected it to do he's saying faith is unlimited in his power faith is unlimited in his power so the father gives him a seed he said Lord I believe help my unbelief I believe that phrase help my unbelief which certainly could not be identified as great faith. But I believe that phrase, help my unbelief, is him saying, I'm not sure how this works, but I'm trusting you. And that was enough for Jesus to use. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the foul spirit, saying unto him, Thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him and enter him no more. And the spirit cried and rent him. Apparently the fit he was still having, if he was still having a fit, it intensified 
if, it, if the first fit was over, then he probably, maybe this means you, another one started. But something looked out of the ordinary here. The spirit cried and rent him sore and came out of him. And he, the little boy, was as one dead, in so, many that, in so much that many said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he was coming to the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast him out? And Jesus said unto them, This kind can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. A lot of people get hung up on that and go to extremes when they uh, concern the subject of prayer and fasting. But I want you to notice something. I want you to notice Jesus didn't have to pray and fast. So when Jesus says this kind can go, come forth or go out by nothing but praying and fasting, he's not saying that you've got to go pray and fast to make it work. He's saying you've got to be spiritually sensitive instead of physically sensitive. You've got to be more aware of the spirit realm than you are the natural realm when you're going to operate in the things of God. Now let me explain what I mean by that. What does prayer do? When Jesus says this kind goes forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting, what kind of prayer is he talking about? She's talking about the kind of prayer that you ask God to do something and God hears and answers you. Well, if that's the case, then he's telling them that they were working the mechanics of the healing power of God in error. That can't be what he's saying, folks. What does fasting do? What's the purpose for fasting? Fasting doesn't change God. Fasting doesn't give us more power. The power of God is not dependent on fasting fasting simply makes you aware of the spirit realm more so than the natural realm because you're denying your body for the purpose of drawing close to God so when Jesus says this kind this kind comes forth by nothing up instead of prayer and fasting or apart from prayer and fasting he's talking about the kind of fasting where you neglect your body for the purpose of drawing close to God and the communication with God that you would have the prayer that you would have as a result of putting spiritual things first. Well, why didn't Jesus have to go pray and fast? Because he lived prayed up and fasted up. He lived his life more aware of spiritual things than physical things. One of the reasons that Jesus knows that the disciples are not in the place that they need to be as far as consciousness concerning the spirit realm so that they can operate the healing power of God is the fact that they don't know what the problem is. See, if you were spiritually sensitive, even in the case of the disciples, if they were spiritually sensitive and didn't know that unbelief would hinder the power of God from working, then the Holy Ghost would have revealed it to them and they'd been able to take care of things. Set the boy free. Does that make sense? So here's a place, here's a situation where Jesus moves the Father from unbelief to just the smallest measure of faith. Now let me show you something else real quickly before we go. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 11. Remember we've already read that when Jesus was in Nazareth, we know that they had heard of the works and the healings and the miracles that he did in Capernaum, right? Jesus knows they've heard the stories. He knows that the word has traveled. Notice what happens, beginning in verse 20. Then began he, talking about Jesus, to upbraid the cities wherein most of his mighty works were done because they repented not. 
So here's Jesus upbraiding the cities where most of his mighty works were done. Most of the healings and miracles were done. We're in three cities. Capernaum, Chorazin, and Bethsaida. These are all in the north and northeastern part or shores of the Sea of Galilee. It's really a pretty small area. And all these cities are within two or three miles of each other and within sight of each other. And so Jesus upbraids these cities where most of the healings and the miracles and the mighty works were done. Well, they've got to be in faith at least to receive what Jesus had communicated to them just like he tried to communicate to, the, to the, those people in Nazareth that he was the Messiah. If they hadn't believed and they wouldn't have had any more healings and miracles and mighty works than Nazareth did. So they have to believe in something that Jesus says and does. But apparently they didn't take the position or take the action that Jesus intended for them to, to take or to do because they believed who he was. Then he began to upbraid the cities where most of his mighty works were done because they repented not. Woe unto thee, Chorazin. Woe unto thee, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Tyre and Sidon are two cities that are on the Mediterranean coast the coastline of uh, the Mediterranean Sea, north of the, the land of Israel, the, the present-day boundaries of Israel. Sidon was one of the places that uh, Joshua and the children of Israel did not conquer in the Promised Land. There were two things, two places specifically, that they did not route the people out and do what God wanted them to do. One was Sidon, the city of Sidon, and the other was Mount Zion, the Temple Mount. There were people that because of the high ground and the high position that they took, they were people that Israel gave up on instead of continuing the fight until they were gone. And they, these people in both cities, these people represented evil in their midst, and they created a problem for Israel even till today. But those two places, Sidon being one, the Temple Mount, or Zion, what was called Mount Zion being the other, where Joshua and the children of Israel, it really wasn't Joshua, he delegated this, certain territories to other people. Well, the people that he de dedicated those territories to didn't do the job in running off the people that lived there, the inhabitants thereof. Tyre is another city on the Mediterranean coast, north of uh, Jerusalem, the boundaries of Jerusalem today, but in what we know of as Lebanon. Uh, on the present day map. The Bible talks about Tyre being there for a long time. As uh, you may remember that when Solomon started building the house of God and building his own palace, King Hiram from Tyre sent special wood. Some of the, the most beautiful, some of the most uh, strong and sturdy elements that, uh, that were available because Solomon wanted to use those or did use those in the building of his temple, the building of the temple of the Lord, and also in his house. So these two cities, Tyre and Sidon, represent the ultimate when it comes to enemies of God. So he says, Woe unto thee, Chorazin, and woe unto thee, Bethsaida. 
For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at that day of judgment than for you. And thou, Capernaum, which art exalted into heaven, exalted into heaven because of the majority of the works that were done in Jesus' ministry were in that region of, of Capernaum. Because they saw miracles nobody else saw. And thou, Capernaum, which are exalted into heaven, shall be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which had been done in thee had been done in Sodom, it would have remained unto this day. But I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Why is he cursing these places? Because they're not doing what they should have done because of the things that they saw. They're not taking a position of a change in their own lives. They're not showing Jesus who has clearly identified himself as the Messiah in their midst. They're treating it just as ho-hum. Here's the miracle worker. Now let me show you something else real quickly in Mark chapter 8, verse 22. It tells us about Jesus' healing ministry. And he came to Bethsaida. That's one of the places that's been cursed. One of the three cities that, he, that Jesus had cursed. He came to Bethsaida and they brought him a blind man. And they besought him, Jesus, to touch him, the blind man. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands on him, he asked him if he saw anything. And he looked up and said, I see men as trees walking. I'm not exactly sure what that means. He must not have been blind from birth to know what a tree looks like, I guess. But a little bit of his sight must have been restored, but not the whole thing. And after that, Jesus put his hands again upon his eyes and made him look up, and he was restored and saw every man clearly. And Jesus sent him away to his house, saying this. Notice what he told him. Neither go into the town, because the town is cursed, nor tell it to any in the town, because the town is cursed. Let me leave you with this thought. Even after Jesus had cursed these towns, he never said no to, some, to anybody that came to him for help. Even though he's in the region that, of the city that's been cursed, Bethsaida, when he encounters a blind man and the people that are with him bring him to Jesus because the guy can't see on his own, when they bring him to Jesus and ask for help, Jesus does not say, you're part of a cursed city, I can't help anybody here. He takes him outside the city limits. And he ministers to him there. Now can you think of any other situation where Jesus ministered to somebody and it, didn't, it wasn't a complete result other than this guy? There is no example other than this one. What does it tell us? Why does it sig what does it signify that when Jesus laid hands on him the first time he could see a little bit better but not completely better? He's living in a place that's cursed because of their inaction regarding the Messiah. See, folks, the, the simple truth is this. We see the same thing in Nazareth that we see in Capernaum and Bethsaida and Chorazin. The difference was in, in Nazareth it was before the fact. In the other three cities it was after the fact. But the reality is very simple. And that is... Associating with people of unbelief will keep you from believing either. 
if you're going to be strong in faith, you're going to have to hang around people that are strong in faith. I'm convinced that a lot of people fail to receive from God because of the people they're hanging around with. We need to decide who we're going to be. We're going to need to decide to be who the Bible says we are in Christ and hang around with, spend our time with, fellowship with people that have made the same commitment as us. That'll make us stronger. You'll make me stronger, I'll make you stronger, and then we'll grow together. But it never works when one person is trying to do the lifting all by themselves. They wind up, instead of drawing the other people and raising the other people up to their level, they wind up going down to the lower level themselves. Thank God his healing mercy wasn't even stopped by the curse that he put on these, these cities. The faith of the man was, was hindered temporarily or on the, according to the short term. But Jesus never said no to anybody that came to him for help. Never. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the revelation that it brings to us. We thank you that the healing power of God is always available to us. We thank you that your love and your mercy always brings us the victory. Father, we thank you that even as your word says, when it explains that faith is like planting seed in the ground that grows up and produces results, Thank you, Lord, we don't even have to know how it works. Thank you that your word says, so is the kingdom of God as if a man should cast seed in the ground and should sleep and rise night and day and the seed should spring and grow up. He knoweth not how. Thank you, Lord, we're not limited by what we don't know. But instead, we simply choose to believe your word. We choose to believe that Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses and with his stripes we are healed. Not because of our bodies, what we feel or what we see, but in spite of what we feel and in spite of what we see, we believe we're healed by the stripes of Jesus. We believe, therefore, that the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, because he dwells in us, he quickens or makes alive our mortal bodies. We thank you, Father, that because we found your word, it is life unto us and it's health to all of our flesh. We, therefore, declare healing in every cell and every, every cell of our body and every fiber of our being. We say that the life of God in us drives out every trace of every symptom of sickness and disease in the name of Jesus. We simply declare, Father, because your word says so, that we were healed, so we are healed by faith. We'll never turn loose of that confession, Father. We'll never turn back on it. Because we believe you to be true and faithful to honor your word. In Jesus' name.